right, Sergo, this is John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I appreciate you guys listening in and joining us in this conversation. We broadcast on WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C., and we are listener-supported radio. So we really depend on those of you who listen to these stations to make contributions to the stations. And I appreciate it when you do it in the name of this show. So, so you send a message to, uh, to the powers that be that this is a conversation and these are conversations that you're not getting anywhere else. And although not everybody's going to agree with every opinion that is expressed on this show, it certainly does make you aware that these opinions and an opinion you may not have ever heard before does exist. So if you're listening in New York City, I ask that you go to the pledge line, which is 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. That's G-I-V-E, the number two, WBAI.org. And you can follow the prompts to make a, a donation. You can do a one-time donation. You can become a sustaining member and become a WBAI buddy. And you can do so in the name of the show. And if you already are one, if you want to up that, you know, maybe a couple of bucks a month, um, we would greatly appreciate appreciate that as well. If you're listening in Washington, D.C., and I hope you are, um, you can go to the pledge line there. It's 202-588-9739, or you can go online to WPFWFM.org. And the same goes there. You can make a one-time donation. You can do a timed donation. You can become a sustaining member where you offer up your credit card information or, or checking account information and an and automatic $5, $10, $15 comes out each month to sustain these, uh, these fine stations. All right. So, look, if you've listened to the program before, you know that um, I tackle many Native issues. And among those issues is the mascot issue. And this is the use of predominantly non-native schools or schools with non-native student bodies who utilize native imagery, sometimes mocking native culture and customs and um, sometimes using racial slurs for names, as it would be, um, for their, their school mascots. And they do this for their own entertainment and amusement um, at the expense of, you know, creating these stereotypical images and promoting Native people as merely a stereotype. And I have been involved in, by now, dozens of schools, uh, some, well, and I would say that we've been successful in almost every instance uh, with getting a school to change. Of course, we also know that this has been an issue with professional sports as well. We've seen the Washington football team drop its racial slur of a name. We saw the Cleveland baseball team drop its um, general term that has been misapplied to to identify Native people. Um, although there are still, <laughs> there is still a baseball team in Atlanta, a football team in Kansas City, and a hockey team in Chicago that uh, that still use Native imagery. And look, one of the things that, that I've always said that while I think the practice is, it is a racist practice, I don't think the necessarily the names, the words used are are racist. Obviously, the word Black Hawk, if your mascot was a Black Hawk, wouldn't be a problem. But if you are utilizing or appropriating Native imagery, Native, um, not not just you know profiles of Native people, but, but symbology, uh, if your fans are donning headdresses and, uh, and going in red face or whatever else, 
Yeah, that's that's pretty problematic. So the issue isn't necessarily the words, although some of them are worse than others. Washington football team had among the worst. But it's the whole idea of appropriating Native culture and then having people mock that culture as a part of their, their fandomonium, as a part of uh, not only their, their merchandise sales and, and, and the like. It's, it's bigger than that. And if you listen to this program, you've also, you also know that, that I have been uh, involved in various strategies, you know, some which were uh, born out of being invited by school boards to, uh, to present a Native perspective on the issue. Um, I have sometimes initiated uh, going to a school and, and pushing the issue. But more often than not, I've, I've been invited. And we've seen this play out in the battles between school boards and sometimes what seemed like pitchfork and torch-yielding public. Um, and we've, uh, we've also seen it get, to the, get down to the point where, where there are uh, legal challenges, where you know, a, a school uh, or a, an education department of a state, like in New York State, makes a determination. And then the school turns around and sues the education department. We've seen school board members who have run for spots on that school board specifically to overturn a retirement of a, of a Native mascot. So we've seen how this plays out and how it, you know, it ends up getting pulled into conversations about critical race theory and, and all kinds of other things. But those aren't the only strategies. And in fact, last night, I was a part of a, uh, of a screening of a film called Fighting Indians, and it, it documents uh, the Skowhegan uh, um, school in Maine, which was the last school in Maine to retire its, uh, its native, native mascot. And the battle that ensued both in the first round when their board voted to keep it, and the second round and final round when the board finally retired it. And then ultimately, Maine, after all of the schools have gotten rid of the native mascots, passed a law forbidding the practice. But during that, um, during that, that exercise, or during that, uh, that whole conflict at, at Skohegan uh, High School, um, they, in, the, in the documentary, they also had um, a lawyer from the ACLU there. And, and he had suggested that there were that there was vulnerabilities that these schools had because they were actually violating the law. And he cited uh, both anti-discrimination laws and, and human rights laws. And so clearly that's another strategy. And, and that is a strategy that really takes somebody, it, it takes somebody to do a lot of research because now you're, you're using, you know, a really difficult legal challenge um, that frankly, many courts would, would just easily dismiss. So my guest today is, uh, is a friend of mine, and, and we've been talking for many years on this subject, and Brad Gallant has, um, has really uh, tackled that strategy. And, uh, and so that's the story that I want this show to tell. I want, I want, I want you to meet Brad Gallant and, um, and understand what he has gone through in, in his challenges. So again, let me introduce uh, Brad to, uh, to resistance radio. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks. And thank you so much for joining me. No problem. So, um, first explain where, where you live, uh, how you, you know, came to be involved in this, uh, your role, both, uh, from your own background. Uh, I know you you've got a child that, uh, that was involved in, in some of your decision-making and that kind of stuff. Uh, tell a little bit of that story first. 
Well, I'm in Mississauga, Ontario, uh, right next to Toronto. And um, I've lived here for the past 17, 18 years. And I started being following mascots um, after the, the uh, I guess, the 2014 decision with um, the trademark case in Washington. And I went to Notre Dame in the U.S. And I just went to the Notre Dame football website and I saw they were selling tickets uh, for their game. Then I saw the Redskins or the Washington football team were selling tickets for the Notre Dame game on their website. And I thought that was a little, just a little odd. Well, no, what, was the, what was the reason for that? I mean, give I, I'm I'm not familiar with that, and we will backtrack because I want to explain that trademark case. But so, what was the justification for the Washington NFL team selling tickets for a, a university's uh, games? So, since World War II, Navy bailed out Notre Dame when they were about to go bankrupt. So they play Navy every year, and the site moves around. And so, in 2014, they were playing at FedEx Field. Well, that explains it. And um, so they were selling tickets. And I'm like, wait a second. I did business ethics when I was at Notre Dame. And they always talked about how you would never do business with people if you ever hurt them. If it was uh, damaging. Um, if you're making money the wrong way. And here I am. Um, and at this time, I didn't know that much about Notre Dame's history. Uh, with regards to Native American issues, I was surprised to see that they were selling um, the mascot gear or selling the tickets on the Washington NFL website. I mean, I knew I was Native in the 1980s, but I never got, we never formed a band until 2010. It took 30 years of activism. Um, and so I saw Chris Rock in 1994 when he was on Saturday Night Live and he talked about the the equivalent New York team name. And I thought it was great. I just thought it was funny. And it always saw, it always stuck to me as something that was an inequivalency in society. Well, meaning what? What was it? What was Chris's uh, a comparison? Uh, well, he said, well, you're calling the team the Washington uh, team name. And it's like, you don't have a basketball team called the New York. N-word as opposed to R-word, right? Okay. Right. And it's just like, you know, what's up with that? And so Chris Rock is much funnier than most people. And when he did it, uh, it was just, it just stuck with me. And so when I saw Notre Dame uh, doing it, it was just like, this is kind of inconsistent with what their, their values speak. And I, it, it just, I started to look at it and I started to follow um, the activism spe specifically of the Jacqueline Keeler's group. Mm -hmm. And I started to, to follow some of the reports and some of the things they were doing. And I, it just, it just seems inconsistent. Now you didn't necessarily um, have a strategy to, to address again, um, the Washington football team using their website to sell um, Notre Dame gear, but it's, it's what kind of spurred you into this, uh, in, into this debate, I guess. Well, I started following it and um, just on a, on a Sunday afternoon while I had a break between hockey games, 
uh, I would just um, I, I would just follow what uh, their group was doing on Twitter, and they used to call it a Twitter storm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just followed along and thought some of the points they were making were pretty pretty spot on. And I started following some of the educational materials because I used to be a teacher as well, so I have teacher training. And well, and let, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about the, the trademark fight since you you brought it up already. Um, sure. For those who aren't familiar, there. Within the law, within the patent and trademark laws, there is a prohibition um, against uh, trademarking, you know, supposed to be curse words and, uh, you know, and derogatory words, uh, slurs, racial slurs and that kind of thing. So initially, Suzanne Harjo had brought a case against the Washington football team's name, uh, citing that it was a, you know, a a well-established, defined uh, racial slur. And initially, she she won, and so basically, by winning, the the patent trademark office said that the Washington football team could not have a patent or copyright or trademark, uh, prote- uh, federal trademark protection on the use of their their name. Uh, Washington appealed, and they wanted a technicality, and the technicality, which is really kind of absurd for those who aren't familiar, was they said Suzanne Harjo was too old. <laughs> they basically said that you have to make this case within a certain period of years after your 18th birthday, because that's when you are old enough to bring such an action. And, um, and they said that too much time had elapsed, so the statute of limitations for her, to ma- for her personally to make the claim um, had, had expired. I've never heard of anybody saying that this was, that this was an absurd interpretation of um, statutory limits. But So then another group, a younger group of uh, of natives, including uh, the um, uh, Amanda Blackhorse, whose whose name is associated with this, but it was it was a, a number of other uh, young native people as well that were party to this. They brought the same action, and they they had the same initial uh, success in that uh, that the patent and trademark office would not offer a or offer federal protection to a racial slur. Now that didn't get appealed, although there were notices of appeals, but it was pending for a period of time. But but for all intents and purposes, Washington no longer had the protection of its trademark, which ultimately could have ended it because the NFL would have had a hard time having a team that could not um, copyright or protect its own name, as, as especially as it related to NFL merchandise. So, but what happened was there was a, another case uh, that didn't involve sports. It didn't involve mascots, but what it involved what it involved was a an Asian American group, a rock group that basically wanted to take what was um, considered a, a slur for towards Asian people, and they wanted to take ownership of it, and so they wanted to call themselves the Slants, and they were denied the copyright protection in the same way that the that the Washington Football Team was. So they argued that that they you know it was a First Amendment right and, and look the ACLU, uh, many organizations that were essentially opposed to what Washington was doing, still had to defend essentially and, and took the position which which I frankly agreed with, um, th- was that the slants had the right to call themselves that, and so when they won their case it essentially it essentially threw out the Washington case so. So what was really 
um, a successful attempt to, to stop Washington from using the name uh, got overturned unwittingly by a group that was really a, a marginalized people who said, no, we get to take ownership to, to something that has been harmful and, and used against us as a racial slur, and we get to, we get to own that. In the same way that you, a black person may use the N word, whether in the lyrics of a song or you know, or however, however, a black person decides that they want to use that, I, you know, there's a, there's a a disconnect between this idea that marginalized people can try to take ownership and and uh, and turn a, what is formerly a racial slur on its head, but uh, so that's the the trademark case that uh, you know that Brad was mentioning. So. You were familiar with that. You saw what you experienced with uh, with this strange collaboration between your uh, uh, college alma mater, uh, Notre Dame, and the Washington football team. So that set you on the path. Yeah, and so that fall, uh, Jacqueline Keeler's group decided to appeal to the FCC and go complain whenever a Washington football team uh, game came on. So I'm in Canada. I can't complain to the FCC. Um, but I saw it and I said, well, you know what? Uh, the good thing about the Harjo Black Horse case is that they had the redskin name identified as a slur. So that's important. And so when, when I complained, I complained to the Canadian equivalent of the FCC, which is the Canadian Broadcast Standards. And I said, since this is a slur, that um, you can't um, you can't have this on TV without an offensive language warning. And the offensive language warning, because it's a slur and you have you know foul words, just makes a G-rated um, broadcast and makes it an adult or a TV fourteen-rated ad that cuts out a lot of advertisers, and that really starts to hit the economic model for these teams. And so I uh, appealed to the uh, Canadian Broadcast Standards. And I cited at one point in Canada, uh, the song Money for Nothing, Dire Straits, was had to be edited because of the use of a description of the guys who worked at MTV, right? And so they bleeded out the F word uh, several times. If you know the song, uh, you know what word I'm talking about, or you can figure it out. There's no need to say it. And a, a homophobic slur. Yeah, a homophobic yeah. slur. There you go. And um, it's just it's just like, you know, there's slurs. Just don't say them. Don't be, you don't have to be an asshole. So, um, and uh, they disagreed with me. And they disagreed with me in a spectacular way. <laughs> they said that uh, it's okay to use the R word because presumably... The R word evokes positive images of First Nations people. And that a lawyer and the head of the Canadian Broadcast Standards would use those words was surprising. Yeah. Well, especially since, again, in the U.S., um, even in that those trademark cases, those uh, the judges in those cases acknowledged that these were racial slurs. I mean, the, the, the R word, or even in the case of the, the slants, that, it, that it's a racial slur. So even though it was permitted under the patent and trademark um, uh, regulations, it was still never 
suggested that it that it had that it ever invoked a positive image. That's for sure. Yes, but you're allowed to use words that are personal to you, so long as you're not affecting anyone else. Right. And so, I, like with this information I had, I went to my daughter's uh, junior high school tournament, and in that tournament, she actually played against Owen Power. <laughs> And Owen scored three goals on her that day. And I was kind of kind of surprised that she's a good goalie, that he uh, just made her look silly. But I'm not so surprised today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we knew Owen when we were kids, uh, when he was a kid. So because my older daughter played with his sister in Ringette. So um, we were there, and every bag at that tournament, there was the Mississauga – um, Blackhawk or Braves, there was the Mississauga Reps, not officially in the city, but they called themselves the Mississauga Reps. There was the Lauren Park Ojibwe, there was the Meadowvale Mohawks, and there was the Mississauga Chiefs. And I had already heard Chiefs fans doing tomahawk chops at games. Yeah. And it just like it surprised me. And I, I just because I had followed the, uh, the mascot issue now, I was kind of aware of it. And I was just like, this is really different. This is. This is not something you see everywhere else where almost every bag has a native logo, especially in a town that was and uh, had no significant native population at all. Um, and I was speaking to someone and he asked my daughter to play with the Chiefs. And I said, you know, the Chiefs name is not really that good. Uh, it's a bit of a slur. The stone arrow is kind of it invokes those images of uh, the savage uh, native stereotype. And, you know, and they weren't a very good hockey organization. And I said, no. And he said, buddy, you're going to have to get over it because it's never going to change. And now, that what, same, what year is this, by the way? That was 2014. Okay. All right. So that same line had been said to me at work over a Newfie joke. And I said, you can't say that. And i said get over it it's never going to change and i'm like i can do what i want and it ticked me off because it ended up i had to quit my job because i, I said you can't do that I went to hr and they said i learned to take a joke so i went to the next step and i went to the hrto and the hrto is not the friend of the people that it appears to be but i learned some stuff and uh, when he said i'm like you know I got to I got to figure out a way to stop this cuz I really don't like people telling me I got to put up with their abuse. And so I went home and I looked and I thought if I argued with each team because Ian Campo in Ottawa went after an PNR word team and he's a guy in the tribe called Brad or, or he was. And that was on CBC and I thought well that's kind of painful to go after each of these teams individually five of these teams and then i was looking around the building and you could see the the uh no harassment banners that they had in the building and i remember signing ice rental contracts about no harassment it's part of the contract and i'm like why and i was like why is the city giving these guys money when their names are discriminatory why are they providing ad space with these images that are discriminatory? And I went and asked the city, it's like, this is in violation of your human rights responsibilities under the code to provide me as a, an indigenous person uh, to be able to access and use the environments without um, 
in a positive or, or without in being in a harassing environment. And they said, yeah, we're fine. That's okay. And I said, well, I'll take you to human rights and we'll just see. Cause I thought I was just going to be asking a question to human rights. I didn't think it was going to be anything big. Right. Um, and they said, well, we're fine. We're not doing anything wrong. And so I took them to human rights. And um, then after, uh, this was why I got the CBSC response. Well, First Nations, uh, our word evokes positive images of First Nations. And you're looking at it and it's like, why are these people so confident that they can do what they want? Why do they know the difference and they enforce the laws and everyone else? But when it comes to them, uh, these rules don't apply. And it just, it just kind of stuck with me. Because you don't mind people who aren't educated on the issues, um, who make mistakes and express, express opinions that it is not something that they should know better. And it's just like, you know, they're trying the best and they don't have all the information and they make a bad mistake. But when people who have full information and have the education that they should realize the constraints that under which they have to operate and they just choose not to because they believe the complaint is from a source that they don't have to listen to, then that's, that's fundamentally racism. Well, and, 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 and to be clear here, again, these are predominantly non-native families that have their kids in, employed in, or, or engaged in these, um, in these leagues, in, these, uh, in, in this activity. And, I would say entirely. <laughs> yeah, and 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 when you do see that, um, you know, exceptional native athlete that somehow can bridge the geographical gaps and and make it into one of those leagues, you know, you, you can only imagine the what that must be like for a native person to be in a sea of whiteness. Where they're all claiming native identity by virtue of their of, of their team name and their mascot and that kind of thing, and then the the idea that they have to experience a certain level of tokenism associated with that. I mean, it is really it, it's really appalling when you think about what would what the circumstance would be for the few, if any, native kids that even. Uh, even make it to uh, to play in in these kinds of leagues with these in spite in spite of the 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 caricatures and the names and the characterizations of uh, of their teams and you know and while we can point to that harm and that damage we oftentimes ignore the fact that all of these white kids are being damaged as well because they're being taught that this is okay and then when you get governments you know and agencies charged with the the responsibility to make sure that there is no discrimination to make sure that uh, you know that racism isn't isn't a part of of you know youth entertainment youth sports that they just balk at it i mean it's it's it is it's it's very frustrating well it's like when you allow it in school you're teaching the kids you're harassing the kids who are indigenous and i've been told by people that um they were in school and they always hated. They were uh, speaking to one Ojibwe guy who I wanted to come forward, right? Because you look at me, you, I don't look indigenous. I am. I'm not 100%, obviously. But this guy had to grow up with the Lauren Park Ojibwe and he was Ojibwe and he always felt taunted by it. But he didn't want to come forward. 
And I spoke to a number of people who I thought might have been better to come forward with it. But I figured out a strategy. So it's like you can't give money to these teams. And once you take away the money from these teams in the ad space, you cut away the financial model for these teams. Well, well explain that. Explain that strategy and, and how exactly you saw um, an opportunity to, to uh, cut their funding. Okay, so every time a, a youth group buys ice from the city of Mississauga, they, saw, they see a, um, a rate reduction of about $70 per hour. Okay, so the Mississauga Chiefs had about 100 teams on average 20 hours a year. So maybe 2,000 times 70 is $140,000 a year. And I actually think it's higher. And I said, if you're giving the subsidies to these organizations that are teaching discrimination to, to kids and harassing Indigenous kids, then the city is actually promoting a hostile environment. I, I think once you learn that it's okay to treat people differently, there's like a lot of times in school, it's like, don't do this to Joni, don't do this to Johnny, but the native kid, ah, forget him. Right. And when you when you have a kid who goes to school and there's a Mississauga Chiefs jersey there and a, a part of the environment is the tomahawk chop and the woo-woo-woos and then it's a hostile environment. Um, and so when you have this and you're supporting this environment, you're not doing your job as a city to uh, protect all of its citizens equally to whenever you come into a place, you're supposed to feel welcome. And at, and at the very least, you're not supposed to be feel picked on. And the logic, really, remember there was, they used to post the um, Ten Commandments in a, a courthouse in Alabama, and the S, uh, ACLU challenged it. Because um, if you have the Ten Commandments in the courthouse, then you're putting one religion above all the others. Right. And it has to be equal access to the environment. You can't say that this is our preferred religion. Everything else doesn't matter. And you can't say everyone else is equal, but you can make fun of the native kids. So once you say that you can't create this environment, then when you're giving money to these teams and you're giving display space to these teams, you are creating a hostile environment. And if, you, if I could prove that it created the hostile environment, if I could, six times I went through the courts, like just, I just talked to people and the responses were always so condescending and like, I don't know what I'm talking about, or you don't even have the right to, to do this. I just, it would just be, I, I said, well, let's see this as a test case and let's pick out all the, the sources of funding. And so if you cut that, and it's proven that the city is creating a hostile environment, then Bank of Montreal, which has a BMO Blackhawks MasterCard, um, they're creating a hostile environment for its Indigenous people who work there and its customers because it's showing that we would never do an ethnic image of a Chinese person. We wouldn't put Charlie Chan on a, a Blackhawks card. We wouldn't put Uncle Ben's. But we put a, the Blackhawks head on it because that's okay. And so... I think this attitude and this tolerance of racism towards indigenous people is reflected in the fact that they arrested a 12 year old girl in, in Vancouver uh, two years ago for trying to open a bank account. 
because the person who works at BMO sees that they don't value indigenous people as equal. And so when an indigenous person comes in, you get the extreme reaction because the bank gives signals that this person is, isn't equal to every other person who comes in. Um, additionally, in a, an employment situation, if promoting these teams becomes seen as creating a hostile environment, then Budweiser, who's a major sponsor of the Blackhawks or the Braves or, um, or past the Washington team, if they have an indigenous employee who's passed over, passed over, passed over, passed over, then the indigenous employee can say, you know what? I didn't get the promotion because they're biased towards me. And Budweiser would say, what do you mean? It's like, we're for, for friends, everyone's good. Yeah, but you're sponsoring the Redskins, you're sponsoring the Braves, you're sponsoring the Blackhawks and Seminoles. And you know what? These, these games promote a disrespect. When those games are played, my, my colleagues treat me differently. When you're affiliated with them, when Budweiser is running the, um, the major event at the Blackhawks game, and then I get woo-woo-wooed four or five times the next week because the Blackhawks game was on and it was on national TV and I get made fun of. And it's like, you're telling them because I work with Budweiser that it's okay. And so this material financial risk to being involved in these teams would take away sponsorship money. So, so, so again, so then how did you make this, this case and to who did you make it to? Well, I made it to the Ontario Human Rights Commission first. I, well, I made it to the, uh, and the Canadian Broadcast Standards, actually, simul pretty much simultaneously. Um, and I made it because um, I, I went for the city first, because the city is the sixth largest city in Canada, has the funds to support it. Uh, Mississauga is the most culturally diverse city in North America, perhaps. Like 60% of the people are visual minorities. Most people weren't born in Canada and it's a very tolerant place. And I also knew that I wasn't in Sudbury or Thunder Bay where making this type of complaint might've been much more uh, contentious because I was in a city where um, blatant racism wasn't as tolerated as it is in other places. So I thought physically I would be safe. I'm a big guy, but I just like Ron White, Ron White has a line is like, I don't know how many guys it would take for them to throw me out of the bar, but I knew how many they were going to use. And right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't going to win. Um, and it's so when you looked at it, I, I thought it was a good place to do it. I thought Mississauga would be receptive to it um, because there is a general tolerance within the community. Um. But uh, I was wrong, and it became an issue. Yeah, now, did did you have any? Um, I mean, was was there any initial success? I mean, I, I I realize how these things ultimately go, but so what was the experience you had in bringing a human rights uh, case in Ontario? Um, well, first of all, I did have some successes. I got support from Amnesty International. And I, I was asked to write uh, some op-eds in uh, Huffington Post. And so I wrote to the head of Peel District School Board, and he came back and it was another, it's like, you know, tradition over 
over rights and this is people's tradition. I'm like, dude, it's like, there's also a tradition where you uphold the law. And I put that in the Huffington Post and pretty quickly the two schools in Mississauga who are in the Peel region, high schools who use native mascots, they changed. Chinkudzi Chiefs and I think the Warren Park Warriors. I think they changed their images pretty quick. Um, and there was another school where I think uh, I was talking to some guy because before I filed, uh, before I met with Mississauga, I went to the Little Native Hockey League, which is here in Toronto, which is the bands in Ontario get together and play a child, uh, an under a minor hockey tournament uh, during the term break here in Canada. And I spoke to a couple of people and one guy told me, yeah, he's on a baseball team. They play a team from southeastern Ontario that call themselves the Indians. And um, they've asked him several times not to wear the Indians gear when they come to the reserve to play the game. And they say no. So I shared that with the Human Rights Commission in one of my responses, you know, the story. And they changed. And even though there was a lot of, like I got on early with, uh, did a radio show with uh, uh, John Oakley here in Toronto. And after I got off the air, he took calls for 20 minutes, having people tell me I was nuts, you know, that was never going to change. And that was nice. And, um, uh, but um, there was at the, when we settled Mississauga, uh, this Ontario Human Rights Commission, did work with, I think, 40 cities to change most of the mascots in Ontario. Um, so you so, uh, so you never got a necessarily a ruling in your favor, but there must have been some um, legal dicta or, or some opinions expressed to encourage some of those changes, I would imagine. Uh, it wasn't an opinion. It wasn't a straight out. See, the way it should have done is like they identified a slur. They should have identified this, um, these images as creating a hostile environment because the Human Rights Commission has a guidelines of policies, guidelines and policies which identify the seven or eight terms which people ought to realize or ought to, ought to be known are unreasonable or creating a hostile environment. And mascots hit every single one of these um, criteria. And if they did an evaluation and said, hey, guys, yeah, this is why. It does this, it does this, it does this. And then you could share that with everyone. But they didn't. They didn't come out and say that it was creating the hostile environment. I mean, they threw we went through a year and a half, and they threw it out. And then I settled, so I didn't have to go through another year and a half or two years of a hearing. Now is this, and, this is this a settlement that you you uh, are not at liberty to discuss? I mean, what I'm allowed to discuss the certain parts of it, only okay. the parts that we've seen released, and getting those partial NDAs um, was an issue as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and again, not these non-disclosure agreements um, is, is, are often pretty oppressive when it comes to reaching a settlement on on a dispute, and and they can. You know, basically, these these settlements and these NDAs are created so while a harm is identified, no fault is ever associated with the harm. Man, it's a sloppy, wet cat kiss yeah. to corporations, is what it is. Yeah, it's basically 
it's a it's a device where corporations can put the screws to you after you're done because you can't talk about it, and they can hold it against you. Well, and they and again they can they can claim that they were still uh, uh, they're still not at fault for anything, and they and that there was yeah. nothing improper, even though. Many times these settlements can involve, you know, millions and uh, millions of dollars. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the Kaepernick settlement with the NFL. I mean, it was not supposed to be disclosed how much they paid, but it was pretty well acknowledged that they, by paying Kaepernick, they, um, they're, you know, the, the public perception is, yes, there's an admission. There's an admission of fault, an admission of guilt, and it's associated with, uh, you know, with making, uh, you know, which everybody assumes was a multi-million dollar settlement. Um, I think I think it did get kind of leaked out, and I don't know if it was in the in the uh, around you know five or ten million dollars or whatever it was. But but again, this is this is uh, how these these settlements can uh, can really erase the fault. I guess is what it comes down to. Yeah, but I mean, the settlements being as part of the Human Rights Commission. I mean, this is basically the screw you to the respondent. And they know there's a problem with it and they don't care because I told them it's like, because I had signed a, an NDA, I'm only allowed to mention it now because I went through a breach hearing and the breach hearing is public because they hit a document and they wouldn't have got the settlement if I'd known about the document. Uh -huh. So I went through a breach and I said, well, look, if I, had, if I wasn't under the NDA, I would have been able to talk about it. And I would have been able to figure out what was going on, but I was under an NDA. And it, there were choices that were made that would not have been made had I known about what was done. And the Human Rights Legal Support Center uh, thought I, I was looking for, I, I was grandstanding, just looking for attention. I'm like, look, the NDA has messed me up. And then the next, over the next couple of months after Heineck, Harvey Weinstein, and then in Canada, there was uh, uh, the University of PEI, there's issues with NDAs, because the NDAs are punitive yeah. to the person's complaints. And they're basically, like, the human rights complaints are targeting mechanisms for who's complaining? How can we fix them? Let's make sure that we know. And so, we, you know, it doesn't work out well for people who complain. Well, Brad, exp explain this to me, though. I mean, apparently, whether it was your work or d just the general um, uh, trend, I guess, that, that certainly exists in the U.S., although I think we're a long way from, I don't even know if we're at the halfway mark, but the general trend to, to eliminate these mascots, especially in schools, you know, something had changed. You said, uh, you know, many of these uh, mascots were dropped in Ontario. Um, what do you think was the impetus for for the change there? I mean, was it was it public outcry? Was it some of your work? I mean, where do you think the push came from? I think I identified a risk, and I think the identification of the risk, and that's through my work, and it was made because I saw the flaws in the in the because they were talked about publicly in the press, because I'd learned about the flaws in the Blackstock in the uh, Blackstock Carjo cases, I like I think their work. I'm sorry, Black Black Horse, uh, Amanda Black, Black Horse. Horse. Yeah, yeah, Blackstock is a famous one in Canada, okay. a famous actress. Um, you should learn about her if you don't know. Sydney uh, Blackstock, amazing work for human rights for discrimination against Indigenous children in the education system. Mm -hmm. 
$40 billion settlement last year. Um, but um, their work was important. It gave me, so I was able to cross all the marks off the board that they had covered. And then I looked for other things. And when you go and you challenge freedom of, of expression, uh, people line up against you because everyone supports freedom of expression. And so my argument was about equity and that everyone should be treated equally by the government. And that argument is a little different because everyone wants to be treated fairly by the government. And so that I think that enables things to uh, reaches out and allows everyone to everyone's on board with that. So that's that's a helpful. Uh, the slur designation done through the the black horse process was important because it set up my process. And so my I tried to go through and say that these create hostile environments. And that identifies the risk for people involved in these teams. So I upstream the complaint. I didn't go after the team. I went after the people who are supporting these teams. And so once you take away the revenue streams, then you kind of damage the economic viability of the continuation of these teams. And I think that's what my case did. Um, so my case led to the Douglas Cardinal case in the 2016 ACLS versus Chief Wahoo, because they actually talked about um, the human rights commissioner who was working on my case, made some public announcements when the Jays went through the ACLS. And they called me midnight one night and asked me to do uh, to be the plaintiff. And I didn't think it was a winner because I had already lost on a jurisdiction issue. Um, and I was worried that I, I didn't want to be seen as somebody who was trying to get publicity out of it because I thought it, I thought it was a loser technically, and it could be seen as a publicity stunt if I did it. When Douglas Cardinal did it instead of me, and I think he was the guy who was funding me anyways, right? I think that was excellent because it gave, gave my case legitimacy. And I think the Douglas Cardinal case um, was instrumental in literally changing their policies because they mentioned the change of Chief Wahoo in the ACLS case. So it's, it's like there's been a number of steps. I mean, so you see the logo or the, so I did a documentary on my try to explain why I see mascots as perpetuating racism in society and to explain my strategy, because I don't think it's the final strategy. I think you have to build on it because I built on Black Horse and Black Horse built on Harjo and Harjo built on Teeters and so on and so forth, right? And so it's a process to get the way through. So I lay out my strategy. The next guy is, or the next girl is going to look at my strategy and say, yeah, this is where Brad screwed up. And then they'll fix it. Well, either that, then, or, either that or you'll see some other cases that, um, that have a, the same premise that are successful. Because, you know, one of the problems is because I, I assume Canada is, uh, their judicial system is, uh, is based a lot like the U.S. where it's all, you use other court precedents to make your case and you, you use this establishment or what is considered established law. And because these issues are not well established unless you can make the, the more broad um, accusation of discrimination and racism, but you don't have a whole lot of cases to cite. 
And you know, and, and you know, one of the things you mentioned, you mentioned that you decided, you know, that you were going to uh, press the equity issue uh, beyond their freedom of expression issue. And and I and again, I had to remind people there are no other people used this way. I mean, if it, look, if you had a sports franchise, a school, or or whatever, even a, even a junior, uh, you know, sports team or something that wanted to utilize, say, another group of people, you know, whether it's black people or Asian people or, you know, or, or, or whomever, if you wanted to use another group of people as your symbology, as your, as your mascot, as your name, we, you would never be able to accomplish that because it would be acknowledged that, that utilizing somebody else uh, would be inappropriate. I mean, even if you wanted to use white people, I mean, what would you what would you call them? <laughs> what would you call them? Caucasians, Aryans? I mean, what would you? So you know that this doesn't work for any other group. So the idea that Native people are singled out in this way is you know gets is is you know gets to your your equity uh, issue because we are singled out. We are singled out as people that that somehow society has accepted can be mocked and can be. Um, you know, have their images and their culture and their likenesses appropriated. And uh, absolutely. And, but so, I mean, just a couple of things. So you ever watch Henry Louis Gates? Yes. And Henry Louis Gates, I, I think he was on with uh, someone earlier this year and he was talking about how on the pre-Civil War censuses that black people were not given names so that uh, they would be identified as property, not, and that was a process of denying their humanity. Right. The last year in Canada, Indigenous people were allowed to use their own names on government documents for the first time. So that denial of humanity has been consistent in Canada. Do you know what birth, birth alerts are? No. Uh, until last year, and then most provinces stopped them and some who said they stopped them are apparently still using them. But whenever an Indigenous woman is pregnant, social services is queued up. So that uh, their assumption is that the Indigenous woman can't manage her child. And social services is queued up and taking a look at taking the child, even before the woman is evaluated whether she can support the child mainly on the basis of that she's indigenous and that's going on today. Well, you know, and that's the, that's obviously the foundation for residential schools, the idea that women can be identified as unfit mothers and so you can take their children and then those children can be identified as, you know, somehow mentally deficient based on only their race and ethnicity. So, this is a legacy of Canada and the United States. Absolutely, and it's built upon the discovery doctrine and the basic assumption is that we can take their land because they're inferior, because they don't worship God. Well, and, 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 and in many cases, more than just inferior, there's a, there's a dehumanization that goes along with it. And, you know, and we've heard that out of politicians, both in the U.S. and Canada, over the last several hundred years, where it talks about us not having entered the, uh, the family of humanity. I mean, that we were somehow less than human because of our distinction, because, uh, you know, our cultural distinction. And, and again, religious belief is a part of that or the lack of religious belief. So, so Brad, we only got a couple minutes left. So, so tell me where this has left you and where, um, you know, I guess, what, do, what does your look forward here? 
Um, my look forward is right now in the next month, I'm at two film festivals in the U.S. I did a documentary that explains my experiences. How, how can people uh, access or, or what's your, I mean, can they view this? Uh, I believe the first one, I mean, I have the link online on my Twitter profile and I can share the link with you. But right now I'm fixing the, the audio because, well, the audio is bad. You're an audio guy. There's a lot of reverb. And yeah, yeah. I'm just fixing the audio. Um because I'm not as good at it as you are. Because, uh, you know, that's, you do the radio broadcast. My, I had a bad mic, and I just re-recorded it with a good mic, and, oh, man, I should have bought a good mic. Um, so it's at the Latino and Native American Film Festival, which is in um, New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, that's next month. And then... Uh, in May, it's at the First Nations Film and Video Festival in Skokie, Illinois. And I can send you those links if you'd like. And I'll send you the link to, to my documentary for people to watch. Um, but wait till Friday until I get the sound better. <laughs> but, uh, well, you can watch it. Now. But I, I get, well, you know, so the challenge is, again, you settled in your, in your cases, um, but now you are using that whole story um, in, in both in your documentary and obviously in interviews like this to, to kind of cite, you know, what your experience has, has been. Is there, I mean, are, do you have a target um, that you're trying to achieve in terms of uh, continuing to, you know, either yourself or encourage others to, to find these, uh, this, uh, these, these kind of challenges at the, at the court level, at the human rights level? Well, but that's why I lay out my strategy. So they can take a look at what I've done. And if they enter into a case, uh, like um, people like Michael Friedman sent me a letter. And like everyone who gave me all their works, like Phil Gover helped me. Um, anyone who gave me all their course material that I could, t or all their educational material, I'll share it with them so they can go forward if they make the case. I explain what I'm doing and why I think it will work. Um, and then they look at my strategies and make an improvement. Uh, I also explain why mascots pro, uh, promote more of a racism than people want. And I want them to understand the racism. I mean, Jackie Robinson, if you watch 42, he had um, Ben Chapman go after him viciously, right? And it was horrible. But Carey Price, 10 years ago, was the best player in the world in hockey when the MVP. He's an indigenous. His mom was chief out in BC. And uh, his dad is also indigenous. So he's a full indigenous person. And he has to play against the Chicago Blackhawks, where people go in or went in with uh, headdresses and did tomahawk chop. Or like Ryan Kelsey. Uh, is it Kelsey or Kelsey? He complained about the tomahawk chop when he was playing the Braves and he went to Atlanta and they actually did it worse. Yeah. Yeah. And well, so well, I guess sure. at, at this point, let's uh, when when I, when this um, uh, when the show airs, we will uh, uh, post some of the links to uh, to to check out your um, uh, your documentary and uh, and look, we'll we'll you we'll have to have you back to talk about how you you know what the reaction has been as you've gone through these film festivals. But I do want to thank you for for offering up. A certainly a different strategy than has been employed, and it's not to say that 
like Amanda Blackhorse and uh, and Suzanne Harjo weren't trying to take it at a at a higher level, or even when you think about uh, Teeters uh, uh, and her work against the Fighting Illini in uh, University of Illinois, that led to the NCAA, you know, t- taking it out at a higher level. But you're right; many of us are fighting school by school, you know, organization by organization, and it's and it's and it's hard work. I think it's work that we're winning, but. Uh, again, it, it'd be it'd be great to have some uh, a a determination, both you know at the frankly at the international level, but certainly with with Canada, the United States at the federal level to to make a change here. I want to thank you, Brad. It's it's been great having you join me. I know we we've, we've been talking about this, and so we're a little bit long overdue. Uh, I want to thank you for for joining me and uh, and really going through your strategy here. No problem, John. I enjoy your chats. It's just fun. All right. It's good to catch up with you and we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, look, this is, uh, this is what we do here and we all have our own different ways of, uh, of navigating this thing. So I do want to thank uh, Brad Gallant for, for joining me and we'll do it again next time. This is John Kane for Resistance Radio. Yahweh.